Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 193. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, once again for allowing us to come to a place where we can quiet our hearts and our minds and begin to set our uh, uh, desire, our uh, focus on um, studying your words and allowing your spirit to reveal the means to us. Um, helping us to um, draw closer to you and to be able to make practical application for the things that we're studying. Thank you once again for all of the students who join me week after week, either via iTunes or YouTube, or even those students in the live class. What a blessing to be able to fellowship with them week after week in this particular manner. I pray that you'll continue to raise all of us up, keep us healthy, keep us strong, uh, keep us blessed, keep us focused on our Messiah, Yeshua, for indeed he is the very one who's going to um, carry us through these very difficult times that we live in. Uh, we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week for these live Internet studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is an hour-long study, and if you're listening to only the short five-minute version of this video, just reminding you um, to um, catch all five parts of each of the um, segments. So 30-minute segments for each topic. 30 minutes for the um, Matthew 9, 14 through 17 study, and then 30 minutes for the Exploring the Shema study. Um, and then uh, that way it, it makes up for one live uh, show, one hour long live show. Let's jump right into the um, the first segment, which is the um, Matthew study. You can see on your screen right now, I've got Matthew 9, 14 through 17 pulled up. ESV calls this a question about fasting. Let's read the relevant passage, and then we'll jump right into my notes. So, starting at verse 14, here's what we read. Quote, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn, as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. And verse 17, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both, both are preserved. So, that's the text we're working from. As I've already mentioned to you, this same story is found in Mark and in Luke. And in Luke's rendering, there's an extra segment to the parable at the very end about wine, where Yeshua reminds people that no one after drinking old wine desires new wine, for he says to himself, the old wine is, and depending on your version, it can say the old wine is better, or it can say the old wine is good. But it's kind of the same concept. All right, we've already talked about how the reason I'm having these studies is because common to historic Christianity is an interpretation of these passages in the allegorical sense of Jesus is answering this question about why aren't his disciples fasting, and he provides an answer kind of in a common sense fashion up, up front about why would you want to fast at a wedding? But then he kind of supports his answer with these two parables, one about the patching of clothing and the other about um, putting wine into wineskins. And what we've learned is that in the historic Christian model of interpretation or method of interpretation, the allegorical one, that um, Christianity has chosen to interpret the master's words as 
Jesus is bringing a change out with the old in with the new. And in that application, that allegory, the um, old is the Jewish way of life, the system of approaching God by keeping the commandments and bringing sacrifices and all of those other things, rituals of the law of Moses. That's the old. And what Jesus is bringing by way of new is this new way of walking out of our faith in God, which is basically walking by the power of the Spirit. All the traditional kind of ways of understanding that Christianity is to lead their lives as Christians, right? In, say, um, contradistinction to the Jewish way of life that was already um, laid down by, uh, by Jesus' time. So, when we have the parables put forth about the the the, the patch on the cloth, we notice there's some incompatibility between the two elements. The new patch and the old cloth are incompatible because one's going to shrink away or one's going to tear away. And so we see there's some incompatibility issues. Likewise, with the wine, we also notice the similar elements, although they're swapped now as far as which one needs to adjust. But it's the same general principle is that there's some incompatibility between something that's new and something that's old. And thus, that's why Christianity has opted for the allegorical interpretation that they provide, which is there must be something that Jesus is trying to convey to his to those who are listening to him explain this. And the um, unfortunate part of this passage that we read is that no matter if you read it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, Jesus doesn't explain his parable this time. Often he will. If you've read, read through the parables of Yeshua, you notice that that's what he does. But this time he doesn't. No explanation. So Christianity is kind of forced, as it were, to supply their own exp explanation. Although, what we noticed is that there's a second way to understand these passages. That is to not opt for an allegorical, but simply to just stick to the kind of historical, common sense, everyday examples about fasting at a wedding, um, patching garments, and moving wine into new wineskins. And what we end up with are some common themes that are all related to common sense, doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do, right? Just doing naturally what would be the preferred thing to do, the right thing, the right response, as it were, you might say. Um, and so, you know, using your thinking brain, would you fast at a wedding or would you feast and rejoice at a wedding, right? Right. Well, most people would feast and rejoice. So Yeshua was trying to say, well, hey, look, I'm the bridegroom that that God promised to send Israel, right? Israel's my bride. I'm the bridegroom. Here I am. Why do you want to mourn? Why do you want to fast? Right? Let's rejoice. Okay. That makes sense, right? Here's let's get some wine out. Let's have fun. Um, likewise, in verse 16 of the Matthew rendering, um, you're gonna patch up an old piece of garment, uh, an old um, cloth, um, you get a new patch. Uh, you got to do some conditioning first, right? You know, because otherwise um, disaster is going to happen. So that's just common sense. And then again, with the wine and the wineskin starting in verse 17, then again, common sense. Uh, and this would have been common sense to anyone, right? You don't have to be a scholar to figure this out in Yeshua's day, nor today, um, that uh, if you're going to introduce these two elements, wine and, and wineskins, one's new and one's old, then you have to do some reconditioning. And in this case, it's the wineskins. So in these parables... Again, without Yeshua's direct explanation, it's no wonder that the Christian church came up with the um, replacement theological-themed um, allegories that they did. When I say replacement theology, this is a term that kind of rubs a lot of people the wrong way, especially Jewish people, because you're going to be on the receiving end of the 
the replacement. You're the one that's being out, right? You're sh being shuffled out. Um, Judaism is the one that's being pushed out of the scene. Christianity is being brought in. So out with the old, in with the new. Israel is the old, um, the people of God. The Gentile Christians are the new. Uh, the law of Moses is the old. That's what's going out. The law of Christ is what's in. What's, that's the new. Um, what else? What else? Uh, the Old Testament is out. The New Testament is in. The Old Covenant is out. The New, new Covenant's in, etc., etc. So on and on, the allegory kind of drives its point home. And you can see this for yourself, people. If you go back and look up the um, commentaries that I researched, uh, Dr. Um, John MacArthur, I think he's a doctor. I just we'll just call him Pastor. Pastor John MacArthur, Pastor John Piper, GotQuestions.org, uh, Pastor David Guzik. Use any Bible commentary that you can find online or at your Bible bookstore or go ask your pastor or go visit a pop into a seminary and ask them the question about these passages. And you are likely to end up with the exact same allegory. It might change slightly, but it's basically an amount to about the same thing is that we're no longer under the law of Moses as Christians because that was incompatible with the new way that Jesus is bringing, right? The new way of life. Of course, you know, I disagree with that. So we supplied some um, commentary from um, David Stern, who's a Messianic Jew. Now we're finalizing this commentary um, that I have by looking at um, another man who's a Messianic Jewish author, Tim Haig. We already started looking at this last week. So let's just pick this up again <clears throat> where I left off. Speaking of the um, parable of the cloth, right? This is in my own commentary. Here's what Tim, ha Tim Haig has to say. So let's read this. Um, he reads, quote, In the two parables incorporating the idea of new and old, the emphasis is upon why Yeshua would choose uneducated men to be his Talmudim. Um, most of the commentators have missed this particular detail, opting rather to follow the traditional view that, and here's what we're um, uh, harping on, here's what I've been kind of complaining about, and for good reason, the idea that Yeshua is teaching the abolition of Torah laws as incompatible with the dawning of a new era which he is bringing. So this, that's the introduction we uh, provided last week, and... Um, Here's what I have to say. Sensing as I also have the theological incongruity created by the interpretation of standard Christian authors, Tim Haig continues. So, when I say incongruity, when I say this is incompatible with, when I say that the allegories that are provided by Christian commentators is incompatible with the biblical perspective that they are supplying, um, what I mean to highlight and to, to, to bring to your attention is that if you simply just accept at face value the standard historical Christian and allegory that the law is being replaced, the law of Moses is being replaced by the law of Christ, um, and the way of life that Jewish people are used to living as approaching God by keeping the commandments, that all is, that's all going to be wiped out and um, uh, set on back burner status or mothballed or shelled or put in the closet or or wiped out altogether. You know, depending on how how kind of um, strongly you apply this replacement. Um, allegorical principle, what you're going to find is if you were to go to the Old Testament and look for some prophecies or promises or indicators that that's what's going to happen when the Messiah comes into the world, you're going to be sorely disappointed. In fact, what you're going to find is the opposite. All throughout the Tanakh, all throughout the Torah, not only 
is God strengthening and establishing his laws, right? The way of walking in faith that was given to Israel via the uh, hand of Moses. Not only are we finding God telling Israel over and over again that my laws are um, here, they're your way of life, they're what you should be keeping. If you want to be blessed, you want me to stay in the land, you want to thrive, you want me to be your God and I'll be your people. Um, you want, yeah, you want, you'll be my people and I'll be your God. Not only do we find that's what is established in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, but we do find promises in the premier prophets like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, where um, God promises one day that he's going to corporately send his Holy Spirit to all the people of Israel and cause them to have, to experience a circumcised heart, this regenerated new man um, um, uh, new man experience, which is why we're calling this section old man, new man, and the Messianic uh, one man. I'm sorry, not this this section. We, we looked at that, the old man, the new man, and Messianic Judaism. This is now a better way to understand this passage. Um, but in the prophecies, um, the point I'm trying to highlight is that over and over again in the prophets, we find God promising that in this experience, this, this new covenant experience that God is going to make happen with his people Israel, part of the product of that new covenant experience, part of the part of the result of God filling them with the Spirit, is that they will walk into his laws, that they will keep them corporately, something they haven't really been able to do um as a corporate people, there have been pockets of obedience throughout the Old Testament, but by and large, uh, idolatry plagued the people of Israel, and you can just go back and read Israel's history to see that. But God's promising one day that his new covenant, right, Jeremiah 31, 31, his new covenant is going to cause Israel as a corporate people to walk into his ways, to keep Torah, right? And that's why we read in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, that one day when the Messianic kingdom is established here on earth for a thousand years with Jesus ruling from that kingdom that the torah the law is going to actually go forth from jerusalem and the word of the lord right the law of law of god is going to go forth from zion of the word of the lord from jerusalem and therefore the, the torah is going to be the established constitution once again of israel and it'll be the worldwide standard that um people will be able to witness so that's why i said we have this theological incongruity that's created by the interpretation of standard christian authors so I'm not trying to slam Christian authors. I'm simply trying to say that um, Christianity has been working with a bias that assumes that the law of Moses has been done away with in Christ. And this is based a lot on uh, um, maybe verses that you read in Paul, right? You know, Romans chapter 6, we're no longer under law, we're under grace. Uh, uh, Jesus saying, I've not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it, Matthew chapter 5. Um, you know, Galatians uh, chapter 2, we're not um, justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ, things like that. And all of these verses, um, especially some of the ones that show up in the book of Hebrews, um, you know, and saying old, he and saying anew, he brought the old, the old is ready to vanish away. Uh, in Colossians, talk about uh, types and shadows, and now the, the type is here, the, the shadow, uh, 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 what do we say, um, um, uh, uh, why do we want to go back to shadows is what Christians often tell me, um, you know, now that Jesus is here. So we've got this whole kind of theology built up around this assumption that Jesus brought the end of the law and that Paul kind of nailed the point home within his own letters. Let's read Tim Haig to see what um, a different way of going about this. Here's what Tim says, quote, this perspective that Yeshua is doing away with the old 
because it is incompatible with the new, simply does not obtain if one reads the parables carefully. Right? Listen to this. In our current text, the reason one does not put a new patch on an old garment is because it will fail to repair the old garment, but will make the tear even worse. So he's working from the common sense first. All right? Common sense. If we don't understand the common sense, we won't be able to make any allegorical application from there. Remember, the allegorical application is Christianity's um, invention. Christianity is the one that came along with the idea of the that what Yeshua or what Jesus must be talking about is an incompatible between the old system and the new system, and incompatible between the existing um, uh, way of approaching God and blah blah blah. All right, that was. Remember, Jesus doesn't give us the interpretation of his parable. He just lays it out there and then keeps moving. Tim Haig continues. In other words, the purpose is to preserve the old garment. Now, let me pause and let that sink in for a moment. If you go back, I'm going to pull up the parable for us once again. If you look at the parable, in verse 16, Jesus says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. So he gives this common sense example from everyday life, patching clothing. But what's underneath the, the uh, example is the assumption that you want to keep the garment in the first place. Otherwise, why would you go to the trouble of trying to patch it? If you didn't want to keep the garment, you would simply toss it or give it away or hand it down to one of your siblings, right? And then go out and get a new garment. Why try to patch an old garment if you don't want to keep the old garment? Understand? All right, so that's what Tim's getting at in the first section here. He continues, even in Luke's somewhat uh, different telling of the parable that we have in front of us, both garments are deemed as worthy, in, uh, for the point is made that the new patch will not match the old garment. Again, common sense, you want to patch a garment that you want to keep. If indeed, um, this is my own words, if indeed, according to uh, the allegory that Christianity has supplied for us, if indeed the old garment is representative of Judaism, the law of Moses, the people of God, the old covenant, the Old Testament, etc., etc., and the new whatever, the new patch, the new system, the new garment, I don't know. They don't really explain their parables very well um, when I read through Christian commentaries. It, it doesn't always match piece for piece, which is fine. I understand that. Parables don't always match element for element as well. Parables are kind of generalized anyway, so that's fine. But if the old is Judaism, if the old garment is Judaism, then why in the parables is Yeshua trying to preserve the old garment? All right, makes sense. Okay, um, Tim Haig continues. Once again, the point is that the goal is to patch the old garment in the best possible way so that it can be worn. Right, you want to keep that article of clothing. So if it's true that the clothing, the old garment, is Judaism and the Jewish way of life and the keeping of the commandments and the law of Moses and the old covenant, all that stuff then it seems like you want to preserve that. You want to keep it. It's something valuable. It's something you want to actually um, right, embark on. You want to embrace it. You want to, you want to uh, you know, keep it around for a while. Um, Tim says, 
it surely is not the point of our master that the old is worn out and needs to be discarded. That last sentence about being old and needs to be discarded, that's the part of the allegory of the parables, which the word parable is supplied by Luke. That's the part of the allegory that is extra to the parables themselves. Yeshua never says, these, these need to be thrown out, at least as far as I can tell. Let's look at Matthew real quick. Let's see, old uh, untrunk cloth, old garment, past tears away, the garment where uh, worst tears made. Nope, doesn't say anything about throwing out there. Let's look at Mark, um, starting verse 21. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the past tears away from it, the new and the old, new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Okay, nothing about throwing out the old garment there either. Let's look at Luke, Luke chapter 5. By the way, um, Mark was Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Luke is Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 33. Uh, we drop down to verse um, 36. No one tears a piece from a new garment. In this, in this one, he there's a little more detail. Tearing a piece from a new garment and putting it on an old garment, right? That's kind of odd. Why would you tear from a new garment and put it on an old garment? Anyway, um, it's, it's almost like you ruin a new item to patch up an old one, but oh well. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Okay, it doesn't say anything about throwing out the old one there either. So, Tim's making a very valuable point. Let's go read that last sentence once again. It's surely not the point of our master that the old is worn out and needs to be discarded. Go back and read your Christian commentaries one more time. Over and over again, the point is made that the old is being discarded. The old is Judaism. The old is the old way of life of keeping the commandments. The old is the Old Testament. The old is, is the uh, law of Moses. The old is the old covenant. The old is the people of Israel. And this is contrasted with the new, which is Yeshua's way of living, keeping the law, uh, I'm sorry, keeping um, Jesus' law, or like the law of Christ, or walking by faith, walking by the Spirit, walking on the power of the New Testament, keeping a New Testament living life, right? We're New Testament Christians. Um, um, you know, we're not under the law, we're under grace, walking by grace, but not by law. Um, you know, the Gentile Christian church is the, the church, it's the bride of Christ, uh, right? You know, the people of Israel and the, and the church are two separate people. Um, we're New Testament Christians, not Old Testament Christians, right? The old covenant's done away with, um, you know, things like that. Um, but again, I can't see it here in Yeshua's uh, parables. And I've looked at all three, per all three renderings, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He doesn't talk about throwing out the old garment. So, Tim's bringing up a very good point. Let's keep reading uh, Tim Haig. He continues, just the opposite is actually true. The old garment needs to be patched so that it be so that it can continue to be worn. Okay, so very valuable point. Again, if we're going to take this parable to its extreme, that the garment represents Judaism and the laws of God as spelled out through Moses, then we want to keep that. We want to keep wearing that. Indeed, as I brought up, um, well, maybe Tim will say something. I'm not going to get ahead of myself. If he doesn't say anything, then well, um, I'll bring up another point. Let's keep reading my notes. Here's what I have to say. Having sufficiently explained a theologically more sound way to understand the parable of the patch, right? Hegg drives his point home with this summary of the wine parable and the overall context of Yeshua's teaching on the subject. So let's look now at, he's gonna to turn to the part of the uh, parable about the wine. This is Tim Haig once again. 
He reads, quote, The contrast is not between old wine as that which is unwanted and new wine as that which is now desirable. All right, let's um, pause again. According to traditional historical Christian interpretations, which are basically an allegory based on the parable. We're studying Matthew chapter 9, 14 through 17. This study is entitled, Are Judaism and Christianity Incompatible with One Another? Short title is Judaism v. Christianity. Or if we want to get short of that, JVC, right? You remember JVC? Uh, the old, um, uh, I don't know, do they still make JVCs? Is that, I, I think it's like a radio brand, not radio, yeah, radio. You can Like a little boom box or a little radio or stereos, right, JVC? If if you're uh, old enough to remember the um the days when uh, LL Cool J that rapper came out with one of his first uh, raps right my radio um he said while well, my JVC vibrates the concrete right okay I used to have one of those big JVC boom boxes when I was back into the uh, hip hop days all right JVC Judaism v Christianity if the allegory is accurate. And these elements in the allegory and the parables actually do represent the elements that Christianity says they do, which I'm not saying they do. That's the whole question. That's Christianity's interpretation of the parables because the master doesn't give us the exact exact um, interpretation. We don't know exactly what they mean. We're just kind of assuming um, we're really left to scratch our heads and fill it in on our own, uh, which is maybe why it's best if we just stop and leave it with the common sense aspect. Maybe that really is the best way to interpret the passages. But Tim Hag reminds us that if indeed is um, that the old represents old wine that's unwanted and new, which is now 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 that which is desirable, then that's not really the contrast that takes place. Even though that's what Christian commentators are going to tell you, is that's what's going on. But let's keep reading. Um, Tim says, in both cases, the wine is essentially the same. Did you catch that? Pouring new wine into old wineskins, it's not the wine that gets switched out. It's just the wineskins that go through some changing. He says, it begins with grape juice and it becomes wine through fermentation, right? It goes from new wine. Eventually, it, it gets fermented and becomes old wine, right? Or aged wine, which is the desirable stuff. Tim says, what is more, the old wine is preferable according to Luke. And that's that's the element that I didn't remember that Tim brought up. Is if you go look at Matthew, at the very end, in verse 17, it says, the new wine is put into fresh wineskin, and so both are preserved. And that's where the Matthew rendering leaves off. Likewise, with Mark in verse 22, he says, um, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine has burst the skins, um, burst the skins, the wine's destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. He doesn't mention anything further, doesn't elaborate. But only in Luke's rendering, if we look at verse 38, back up one verse, verse 30 says, but new wine must be put in fresh wineskins. And that's where Matthew and Mark would stop. But look what Luke says in verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Or, again, depending on which translation you're reading, it says the old is better. Because there's a difference in manuscripts. There's a different Greek word used in uh, across the manuscript families. Uh, not a huge difference between the word good and the word better here, so don't get all tripped up over that. The point I'm bringing up is that Luke adds this final extra detail about the parable about the wine. 
And if I, and I've added this, and if indeed the allegory that Christian commentaries have supplied is accurate, let's just assume for a moment, let's give them the benefit of doubt. Let's just say Christianity is right on the money and that Jesus is actually talking about an incompatibility between the old and new and that the old is undesirable and that the new is desirable and that the old is on its way out and that the new is on its way in. And that the old is Judaism and the way of keeping the commandments of God and following after the Torah of Moses and keeping the, the you know sacrifice, all that stuff, that whole old system. Let's just assume for a moment that Christianity is right on the money. Let's assume that the old in Yeshua's parable represents that old system that Jesus is replacing. Well, wouldn't it really be strange for Jesus to say at the very end of Luke, no one after drinking old wine, which represents Judaism and the law of Moses, desires new, which represents the New Testament, the new covenant, and my new way of living, right? The law of Christ, et cetera, et cetera, the new people of God. No one desires that for, he says, the old is good or the old is better. If the old is really Judaism, if the old is really uh, uh, the way of life, as modeled by by Moses, by Torah, by Old Covenant, by Old Testament, uh, by the people of Israel, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then why would Jesus make a point to explain that the old is good or the old is better, right? Kind of throws a monkey wrench into the whole Christian allegory. At least I think it does. All right, let's go back to Tim. Um, so he says, the old wine is preferable according to Luke. And let's really just remi- remind ourselves that common sense tells us that the old is better, right? Let's just drop the allegories for a split second. Common sense tells us that old wine is better. It's it's more desirable than new wine, right? I mean, go anywhere in the world, go into any bar, go into any liquor store and ask them, hey, do you have any wine that was just made like last night or yesterday or you know, last week? Um, can I have a bottle of that? And they'll sell it to you for like, what, five bucks, right? It's really cheap. But ask them, do you have any like 30-year-old scotch? And they'll say, sure, we got it. And they go in the back and they bring this back out. And you say, okay, you flop down a $5 bill or $20 bill. And they're going to go, uh-uh, not enough money. Why? Why is the old wine more expensive? Because the more old liquor, right? I said scotch. Why is the old more desirable? Because it's been aged, right? That's the common sense factor again, people. So let's let Tim continue. Uh, And let's see how much time I got. I'm I'm right at the end here. I think, you know what? There's a lot to read here. Let's actually, let's not actually uh, continue with with, um, Tim Haig. Let's stop right here at the top where he says, what's more, the old wine is preferable according to Luke. Let's stop right there with our study here on uh, Judaism v. Christianity. We'll pick this up not next week. Just a reminder, next weekend is, um, if you look at your calendar, it says Rosh Hashanah. But if you look at your Bible, it says Yom Truah, so the Feast of Trumpets, um, or head of the year, New Year. So we're not going to meet next week because I'm not going to ask you to come take away your time from your um, uh, congregational uh, meetings to uh, sit and listen to my own commentary or meet with me in my live studies. I'd rather not do that. I'd rather you um, be with a live community, if you can, if all possible, if you've got a local congregation you can attend, go ahead and do that first. So we will not meet next week, but we will pick this up again in two weeks. And when we do, we'll just pick up right here where we left off, um, where uh, we're looking through Tim Hague's commentary. But that'll do it for Judaism v. Christianity. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another?
These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week. But if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also... Um, Invited to head on over to tetetor.com. That's my own personal tour teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around. And um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Tour Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video, like a short five-minute video on the topic uh, every day, twice a day sometimes, and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that. I try to keep fairly busy. Um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website. And for those of you in post-production, you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, hit the bell for notifications. Leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections. Hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching. And make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any, any other installing if that's what you'd like let's turn to exploring the shema discussions on the issues of trinity this is a 30 minute long um segment but it's broken up into five short videos of usually five to six minutes each so if you're watching one of the segments uh, one of these um, videos, one part, like part one of five, make sure you watch the entire 30-minute um, segment or just watch all five parts of the video so that you don't lose the context of what we're talking about. So we're in this section of part three of a paper that I wrote uh, on the um, Trinity, on the tripart nature of God. You know, I'm a Trinitarian believer, and so these are the opinions that I'm going to bring to this discussion. And what we've been going through are... Um, um, Part three, which is who or what is the Holy Spirit? We're we're working our way towards anticipating looking at some verses about the Holy Spirit specifically. Is he an it? Is he a person? Is he personal? Uh, what are his attributes? How can we know from the Bible um, how to identify who the, or what the Holy Spirit is? But what I'm doing first is I'm going back into my own notes and borrowing something from, I think this is part two, We've already looked at this probably months, maybe in a year ago, but I'm going back and revisit it in preparation for uh, turning into these verses again. And here's where I left off. 
last week. Indeed, these are my own notes. Indeed, commenting on Hebraic thought versus Greek thought. Uh, and I recommend that you see my paper one of this commentary. And I say within the scope of attempting to unravel the ontological nature of God and Christology, we have Messianic author, who you guessed it, Tim Haig, aptly noting. And many of you ask me, why do I always use Tim Haig? What's the big deal? I mean, can't I use someone else? Yeah, I could. There are lots of resources out there that are available to you. Um, I don't only use Tim Haig, but um, the old saying goes that, you know, when you find a fountain that just has got really good water, you're going to keep drinking from that fountain, right? You, you, If you find a source, or we can use the restaurant analogy, right? You find a restaurant that's really feeding you, right? The, the prices are good and the food is good. You're going to keep going back to that restaurant. Okay, Tim Haig is like that fountain or like that restaurant. He's just, he's got some really good water to drink. He's got some really good food to eat. And the prices are good, right? Follow through with my analogy. So he's just a great resource. And his commentaries are parked on the web at torahresource.com. Um, so I highly recommend that you go check it out. All right, so that's one of the reasons why I turn to his notes over and over again. All right, so let's look at what he has to say. Um, this is in in a relationship to the, not to the Matthew study. This is Trinity now. Um, here's what Tim says. And we're, we're talking about this idea of Hebraic thought versus Greek thought. And the reason this is relevant, before I jump into Tim, the reason this is relevant for us in our study is because we live in a modern age where we've lost the appreciation for the Hebraic way of interacting with the scriptures. We have to remind ourselves over and over again when we're studying the Bible that we're reading um, documents that are, you know, 2,000 years or older. And what that has created is kind of a distance between the mindset of the way that people thought when they wrote the Bible and the mindset of the way we think when we read the Bible. And so how this is relevant to Trinity is that what I believe is um, important or what I believe is put forth uh, for us to think about is that when we study through ancient Hebrew writings, not just the Bible, but extra biblical writings as well, so we can gain kind of an, an historical appreciation for the, the Hebra Hebraic worldview that the writers lived in, what we find is that there's this concept known as Hebraic thought where it's there's a tension and I'll put a little graphic on the screen, um, a tension between a thought that's over on one side of the room or the table and another thought that's over on the different side of the room or the table, and they seem to be opposite one another logically. But since we trust both of the thoughts and the ideas implicitly, we, we trust them right, with everything that we've got, then rather than discarding one in favor of the other, in the Hebrew mind, we actually keep both of those concepts and we allow them to create a tension between one another by pulling against one another. And so this is known as Hebraic tension. Uh, the, the analogy that I'm going to put on my screen, the little graphic, is a, is a tug of war between two people pulling a rope. And if you think about the analogy... The picture, if you take a rope and string between two parties and they start pulling in opposite directions, there's tension on the rope and the rope is, rope is pulled tight or taut and the rope is pulled um, right straight. It's because they're pulling, one's pulling his direction, the other guy's pulling the other direction, the rope is going tight. And in one sense, it's a stalemate. Neither party is going anywhere. There's no progress being made. And so from one perspective, that seems to be a failure on the part of progress, right? Why would you want tension going in, in two opposite directions? There's no progress. You're not going to get anywhere, right? 
it seems to be that common sense would say if one party would concede, then progress can be made going one direction or the other. And indeed, that's the, the kind of comparison between Hebraic thought versus Greek thought. Greek thought prefers progress. It likes when concession is made or um, uh, agreement is made or um, compromise is made in some cases. And at least you've got um, direction moving one way or the other's flow, right? Versus this tug of war where neither party is getting it, making any ground. They're just both pulling against the other. The, 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 the rope doesn't go anywhere. All right, so let's read Tim, Tim's um, um, relevancy. When we're talking about the Trinity, um, we've got the quintessential tug of war. Is Jesus God or is Jesus man? Notice the two ideas and concepts on two sides of the discussion, two sides of the table, two differing, seemingly opposing sides of the argument. And in Greek model, we prefer to either say, let's go with the idea that Jesus is man. That's progress, right? We abandon the idea that Jesus is God. So we compromise or we abandon. We, we drop that um, struggle and we simply go in the direction of Jesus being man. And therefore, progress is made going in that direction. Or, or we drop the idea that Jesus is man and we just say he's fully God, like kind of oneness Pentecostals think, right? He's fully God and there isn't really any humanity for us to even worry about. There wasn't really a man Jesus. There's just this God Jesus, right? All of that, all of what God is, is collapsed into the name of Jesus. And therefore, um, there's no struggle anymore, right? Jesus is fully God. So, in this example that I'm providing for you, Jesus is man or Jesus is God. In the non-Hebraic model, I say Greek model, Western thought, Greek thought, non-Hebraic thought is really what I'm describing. Moderns we would think this way, liberals would think this way. If we can compromise on one or just drop one of the arguments, then we can have some progress one way or the other. But as long as you're going to try and say that Jesus is man— and Jesus is God, you're going to leave this tension in the room, and you're always going to have this tension, and you're not really going to make progress. But the Hebraic model says we're okay with that. We're okay with tension. We're okay with holding two truths in tension because we affirm both truths. Even though it creates tension in our minds, it's a little bit uncomfortable, and it doesn't seem like there's progress, but we believe that this is the right way to approach the topic because both items on the table of discussion is jesus god is he man both items are relevant and both are true so let's see what tim Hague has to say <clears throat> here's how he puts it we're faced then with this challenge right we must seek to know yeshua from the pages of scripture without forcing an ontological template upon them i have to stop and define this word on ontological for a lot of people let me just click on it and um, the dictionary definition pops up and it says ontological as an adjective. Number one, it's relating to the branch of metaphysics dealing with the nature of being, right? Ontological arguments. Number two, showing the relations between the concepts and categories of a subject area or domain, an ontological debate or an ontological framework for integrating and conceptualizing diverse forms of information. So in plain language, when we say ontological, we're talking about in, in relation to God, we're asking the question, what is he made up of, right? What are, what are the sum of his parts, as it were, right? We've got God under our little microscope, and we're trying to figure out 
his composition, right? Um, how can we understand this being? So an ontological discussion about the Trinity is a discussion that um, brings up topics about the nature of God, the essence of God, the being of God versus the person of God. Um, is he one? Is he three? Um, is he numerically one, like um, you know, Doctor Tuggy tries to say, and, and other uh, uh, um, analytic theologians and things like that? Is he numerically one? Is he numerically three? Um, is he tripart? Is he unipart? You know, what is God? How is he made up? That's what we mean by ontological. And by comparison and sometimes contrast, um, we can have what was called an economic discussion about God. There are actually two labels. I'll put this on the screen as well in post. There's the ontological trinity, which talks about God's nature. Those are those discussions go in that direction. Very philosophical, usually. And then there's a more practical approach to looking at God's identity by um, simply looking at what he does in human history, how he interacts with humans, particularly salvation history. And when we're talking about Trinity, we call this the ontological, I'm sorry, we call this the economic Trinity. So ontological Trinity and economic Trinity, these are not in tension with one another. These two can coexist. They're just simply um, looking kind of inward at God and then the other kind of looking out, looking at the outside of God. So um let's keep going tim says we cannot begin right we're talking we're having this discussion about ontological trinity and um hebraic tension versus greek tension hebraic thought versus greek thought and you know are both true is it a versus b is it one or the other can it be one and the other that type of thing um tim says we cannot begin by asking the greek questions of essence and being and then expect to find answers in the Hebraic-oriented text of the Bible. This is important because in my experience of dealing and interacting with non-Trinitarian peoples, this would include, and I'll put this on the screen as well, Unitarians, um, you know, uh, Church of God, Oneness Pentecostal, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, you know, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint, Christadelphian, Iglesia Ni Cristo, some of the other groups that you see on your screen. Um, these non-Trinitarian groups are, without even recognizing or admitting it, oftentimes the discussion of how we can understand God is kind of rooted in the philosophical aspect of, well, that doesn't make sense if God is more than one. And notice the, the objection is, that doesn't make sense. I was watching an author... Um, a very vocal Unitarian author. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but I'll flash a little picture of him on the screen and you guys and his name so you guys can see who it is. But this author um, is a very, in fact, you know what? I, I think I, I do have a way of finding out. If I go here to biblicalunitarian.com and click on the very first verse in their set of verses where they deal with Old Testament, um, deal with uh, passages, see the gentleman's, uh, the, the picture of the gentleman on the screen right now? Um, does it say his name? Ah, it doesn't say his name. Okay, it's something like Sh Shane, 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 Shane. It no. Okay, I'm I'm guessing. Anyway, that's his picture. Uh, all right. So this gentleman is fond of of saying that um, when the scriptures were written, that what should be taking place is that something should be told or taught that makes sense. 
give them some give the people something that they can believe in right if jesus simply hit the scene saying i'm god i'm god i'm god guess what i'm god you know no one would have believed that or if paul went around saying writing um to everybody hey guess what jesus is god he's god he's god right would anyone have believed him is what um this author is purporting is right it would have been so fantastically unbelievable that would have been nonsense so instead the bible is written from a kind of common sense perspective you've it's got to be believable for it to be receivable is kind of his kind of whole way of pushing his agenda there pushing his, his arguments well the greek model kind of works from that concept as well it's got to be logical and so there's always this pushback against the trinity that's illogical that's incoherent that's inconsistent that that doesn't make sense how can god be three right we're going to be monotheists god's one god is one god is one this is what my unitarian and non-trinitarian adherents or uh opponents i should say uh, keep reminding me over and over again we worship one god we're not worshiping three gods like you guys and i'm keep reminding them we're monotheists too right don't be confused that monotheism is automatically an endorsement of unitarianism because it's not right so tim higgs says oops that's not where i want to be that's trinity study here we go tim higgs says um that's uh that was uh my matthew study that i was looking at but let's jump into the trinity tim says um Greek says the Greek mindset, meaning the non-Hebraic mindset. I don't mean Greek language or Hebrew, Hebrew language. I mean Greek mind, Hebrew mind, philosophical thought versus biblical thought. Um, essence and being and stuff. We're, answer, we're asking these questions, you know. Um, we've got a Hebrew-oriented Bible, but we're going to approach it from a Greek philosophical uh point of view right you're going to run into some problems there tim says rather instead right instead of looking at the bible through greek or you can supply the word western there if you want to as well instead of looking at it from a greek slash western eyes we have to oh i'm getting ahead of myself he says rather we must accept the fact that the identity and definition of god and the messiah he has sent will be known in the scriptures as we read of the work of God and his Messiah. So I've mentioned this before. When you ask the Bible, who is God? Who is Messiah? Who is the Holy Spirit? Please show him to me. If you're expecting a Greek slash Western answer where the verse says, when like Jesus speaking, looks at the camera, right? he breaks the fourth wall and he says, hi, everybody. I'm God, you know, bada boom, bada bing, right? Boom, I'm God. If that's what we're expecting, then we're going to be sorely disappointed. You know, if he's walking around everywhere saying, hey, everybody, how you doing? Nice to meet you. I'm God. If that's what we're expecting, of course, you can hear the humor in Bobby voice. I mean, that, Jesus wouldn't really do that. But if that, that, it's almost as if that's the way the text is why we think the text is going to say that. I, I get this pushback all the time from people who dialogue with me about Trinitarian topics. If Jesus was God, why didn't he just say he was God? If Jesus is God, why isn't there a verse that just says plainly Jesus is God? Um, if, you know, the Bible wants to tell you that Jesus is God, why isn't there a verse that says it that way? Uh, or, you know, if the Holy Spirit is God, why, why can't we pray to him? Why don't we have one single verse where it says, you know, pray to the Holy Spirit or something like that? And so they bring up these kind of illogical arguments because they're really looking at it from a Western view, worldview. They're, they're approaching the text as if the text is supposed to yield to their non-Hebraic um, scrutiny of the Bible. And so that's kind of what Tim is trying to say. It's, it's like, look, the Bible wasn't written from Western moderns. It was written from ancient Hebrew worldview. And so if you ask the Bible, who is God, who is the Messiah, who's, who's the Holy Spirit, instead of simply telling you, 
who he is, what you're going to find more often than not is that the Bible will demonstrate who God is, who the Messiah is, who the Holy Spirit is, by the actions that they perform, by the works that they do, by the miracles that take place, by the reaction of the people as they interact with these um these uh, the 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 um the subjects that we're talking about in our discussion god messiah or holy spirit you know depending on what passage we're looking at and so if you simply allow the bible to you know if you say who is god and god will say instead of god looking at you right breaking the fourth wall looking at the camera pulling a soliloquy and saying i'm god i'm one god but i'm three persons and the three persons are father son and holy spirit we're all one god but we're three separate persons right we're tripart we all have our own separate personality or person we're not just one god wearing three men right that's not what god does when you ask him who are you instead if you ask god if you could have a conversation with god face to face and say god who are you instead of him answering the way i just did i'm god i'm the one being with three persons blah blah he would say I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God that split the Red Sea. I'm the God that brought the children of Israel through the dry land. I'm the God that brought them to the Mount Sinai and gave them the, my, my precious holy laws. I'm the God who created the universe. I'm the God that sprung the scars into the, the, the sky. I'm the God that, you know, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna hear all these actions. <clears throat> All of these, um, and, and sometimes you'll get attributes. I'm the God who's who's the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, right? I'm the God who's, um, who, who knows, the, searches the hearts of all men, right? Who can see uh, the end from the beginning, right? Sometimes you'll hear kind of some of his attributes and things like that, but often, more often than not, you're simply going to end up with um, uh, actions and historical events that some some of them are are, hist or, are miraculous and some of them are just saying kind of like um very mundane right i'm the god who created everything well that sounds miraculous but when you get down to it it's just kind of wow the heavens and the earth are here i'm the god that makes the trees grow i'm the god that um you know causes the crickets to chirp you know this sounds very mundane and ordinary but it's true. I'm the God that, you know, makes the stars stay where they're at and so that they don't fall from the sky and destroy everything. You know, that's what we're talking about. That's kind of how Tim Hague's um, bringing his discussion. He continues. He says, or to put it another way, right, the language of the Bible will be properly understood only when we interpret it within the Hebrew worldview in which it was written. So I've got one of these readers who's interacting with me on my YouTube channel who says he's a former Trinitarian, but now he's a Unitarian Christian. And the reason he broke away from Trinitarian theology is because it wasn't answering the questions that he was asking. The Bible, you know, he was saying, well, if Jesus is God, then why not, mm -mm, you know, XYZ fill in the blank. And what I was, what he and I are starting to dialogue about is that you can't make the Bible say what you want it to say you have to allow the Bible to speak for itself, and then you simply receive it. That's the proper way to interpret your Bible. But too often, we make the mistake, and don't worry, we Trinitarians do this too uh, from time to time. It's just that I'm saying that Unitarians do it more often. They take the Bible, and they say, if Jesus is God, then, and then fill in the blank with whatever presupposed um, criteria that must be true in order for them to be satisfied that Jesus is God. It's kind of like it reminds me of some of those religious leaders when Yeshua was interacting with them. They're like, if you're the Messiah, then you know, make certain thus and such situation be true. Or, you know, if you're the Son of God, you know, come down off the cross. 
Uh, or remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. If you're the son of God, then, you know, command these stones to turn into bread. You know, make X amount of miracles happen if you're the son of God, you know. Um, so that's 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 a wrong-headed way to approach the Bible. If Jesus is God, then why is blah, blah, blah? If Jesus is God, then why not blah, blah, blah? You know, again, he brought up the uh, the, the person I'm referring to. I think he brought up the question, you know, if if the Holy Spirit is very God, then why don't we have a verse where uh, listing that we can pray to him, right? Why is the Holy Spirit prayed to? And again, that, that's kind of the wrong way to think about it. I, again, I know it's well-meaning, uh, but we just have to stop and ask ourselves, who was the Bible written by? It was written by Hebrews uh, with a Hebrew worldview, even in the Greek, even though it was penned in Greek in the New Testament, the Apostolic Scriptures were written in Greek, but the thought process behind uh, the Greek was still written by people who lived in a Hebrew worldview. Uh, even if they wrote in Greek, Paul thought in Greek as well. I mean, he could obviously put together Greek compose, composed verses. So let's continue with Tim Haig. He says, this is going to, this will never satisfy the linear logic of the Greek mind. That's nothing wrong. By the way, it's, it almost sounds like I'm throwing the Greek mindset under the bus, right? The Western worldview under the bus. I'm not. I'm, I'm simply saying, apply the tool when the tool is correct, when, when it's the right tool to be used. So you've got a tool shed, a toolbox, and you've got a variety of tools. You've got to pick the right tool for the right job, right? If you need a screwdriver, then get the screwdriver. Don't grab a hammer. And vice versa, if you want to drive some nails, don't grab the screwdriver. My point is, when we're talking about interpreting the Bible, the Hebraic worldview is going to go, go farther in the long run then will the Greek perspective, not Greek language, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying Hebrew language versus Greek language. I'm saying Hebrew thought versus Greek thought, Hebrew worldview versus, say, maybe Greek modern philosophical Western worldview. And so we've got this linear logic that we're kind of imposing on the text. We're trying to force the Bible to speak and read the way we modern philosophical um, thinkers uh, process information, right? We, you know, we like our flow charts and our our PowerPoint slides, and we like everything to have little uh, graphs, and you know, we like to see how the progress is going from left to right and from top to bottom. Uh, but when the Bible doesn't lay everything out logical for us, then we cry foul, right? But that's not the way the Bible is written. So Tim Head concludes, and I'll probably begin to wind down with this thought. He says this: this will never satisfy the linear logic of the Greek by nor. Will it work to use the categories of linear logic to describe the God of Israel, right? When we say linear logic, I'm reminding myself again of the analytic theologian, Dr. Dale Tuggy, whom I have the highest respect for, and I actually aspire to be a type of Bible student similar to him. I love logical thought process, right? That's just the way my mind works. He's an analytic theologian, but his weakness is that when he looks at the text, when he looks at the Bible, he sees an illogical um, description of God when uh, viewed through the lens of the Trinitarian model of God, right? Immediately when he hears a Trinitarian say that there's one God yet three persons, Dr. Dale Tuggy scratches his head and he thinks, okay, in the world of analytic theology, which is logical way of thinking about it, there's one too many beings or one too many subjects in view, um, if God is one and God is numerically one, then how can God be three? If everything that is God is also Jesus, 
then they're really just collapsed into the same person, like the one is Pentecostal to teach all over again. But it's it's evidently true from reading the Bible, even at a cursory level, that there are things that Jesus can't do that God can do, right? There are things that the Holy Spirit cannot do that Jesus can do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So if you look at the three persons, there are obvious differences between these persons. So how can they be numerically one being, right? You know, if, if, if there's a person out there who can do everything that Ariel does, well, isn't he Ariel? Well, it depends. How deep do you want to go when you're talking about everything? So this is what I mean by linear logic and things like that. And that's what Tim Egg's trying to uh, um, remind us of. He continues, we, talking about we believers, we uh, Christian Bible students, we must be satisfied with knowing and defining God and his Messiah. How? By understanding and appreciating the work of God. There's that word work again, the work of God and what he has and will accomplish through it. So again, if you want to ask the question, who is God? God, who are you? If you were to put him in the chair and begin to ask questions of him or Jesus or the Holy Spirit, who are you? Don't be surprised if instead of saying, I'm this one being who's made up of three parts, who's flung the universe into existence. Instead of describing his ontological nature, right? Instead of Jesus saying, well, I'm this guy who's got two natures. I, I came from heaven. I existed with God in eternity past, but as the eternal word of God, the Logos. But then in time, um, I was pulled into human history through the womb of my mother, Mary, and then I became a human being. You know, instead of you know, that description when we're asking them the question, who are you? Don't be surprised if they respond, I'm the one who, and then fill in the blank with X amount of works that are done or miracles that are done or or salvation, um, historically uh, relevant um, uh, details that are put into uh, practice, things like that. That's who God is. Let's continue. Let me see how much time I got. Actually, that's probably a great place to um, call it quits. Uh, we're right in the middle of reading this um, uh, answer from uh, Tim Haig's uh, Hebraic thought versus Hebraic worldview versus Greek worldview. Let me kind of get a wet your appetite for something that's going to take place later on down the road. When I finish this this part of my study, I want to do like a little excursus. I'm being um, uh, inclined. I feel uh, a desire. Um, I feel maybe it's a, a, maybe a, 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 a godly desire, um, inclination to go to the website known as biblicalunitarian.com and click on their link that says verses. And like you can see on your screen right now, and what they have is they have supplied a list of common verses from both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And what they are is they're verses that are commonly brought up into discussions between Trinitarian Christians and non-Trinitarian Christians. In other words, these are passages that we Trinitarians might, might um, identify as either Trinitarian or at least triadic passages that are often brought into discussion, almost like our own um, proof texts, where we say, well, of course, the Bible teaches Trinity because of, and we pull out our favorite text. And then so what the Biblical Unitarian website has supplied is that particular text and an alternate or a Unitarian perspective on that text or a Unitarian interpretation. And what I'd like to do is, after doing some of my own research and going through my, this commentary, I'd like to do an excursus, and I don't know how long it'll take, but I feel that it might be practical and beneficial for us as uh, students of the Word 
to go through these verses again. We're going to look at the verses one by one, not take terribly too long, but if I can read the Unitarian answer, and then what I'll do is I'll supply my own Trinitarian response to the Unitarian answer. And I think what this will do is it'll give some more, um, you could say ammunition if you want, but give a little bit more answer for Trinitarians who feel like, oh, I've been stumped. Right, I had my favorite Trinitarian verse. It made sense to me. Suddenly, this Unitarian came along. He read the verse, the same passage that I'm reading, and he he explained it in a Unitarian fashion, and it stumped me. Now I'm thinking, how do I explain that? Well, and what ends up happening is, let me just again explain. A lot of Trinitarians who aren't versed in studying their Bibles will listen to the Unitarian answers and then go, you know, that's logical. That old Greek Greek uh, mindset again, right? Greek Greek uh, way of looking at scriptures. Hey, that's logical. That makes sense. And so they'll abandon their Trinitarian worldview perspective interpretation in favor of the more logically palatable Unitarian view. And down the road of Unitarian, they they go. But perhaps maybe we can prevent that tragedy from happening by providing a response to the Unitarian, showing some of the weaknesses of their logic, showing some of the inconsistencies in the way they use certain passages, uh, inconsistencies in the way they're using the Bible, some incompatibilities with their explanation, and some holes in their theology. So um, just some more, uh, like I said, I, you can call it ammunition if you want, but that's not going to take place anyway, anytime soon. We still have to finish this, um, my own commentary, which could take another few months, and then we'll jump into this. But just kind of something to pray about, pray with me uh, that uh, uh, this is something that could happen. It's not, I don't have to write a new commentary. All I have to do is look at these verses. It's already been put together. I just supply my own take on uh, this passage. But That'll do it now for uh, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's uh, turn now to the, if you're watching the long video, uh, the long, um, the, the video that I upload to my YouTube channel, we're going to turn next to the um, liturgy and read through some liturgy and then we'll watch the video, the feature video, uh, and then we'll dismiss in prayer. Okay. Let's turn to the um, liturgy real quick, read that, and then we'll watch the video, and then we'll just close in tonight's uh, discussion. The uh, liturgy tonight is Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34, and we read the English last week, and so we're only going to read the Hebrew tonight, okay? So starting in verse 31 right there, uh, for those of you with me in the uh, uh, live study, you can see on your screen. Let's just start in the Hebrew right there on the right side of the page. The Hebrew says, Hine yamim ba'im neum Adonai v'charati et beit Yisrael ve'et beit Yehuda brit chadasha. Verse 32 says, Lo kabrit asher karati et avotam b'yom hechaziki b'yadam l'hotziam me'erz mitzrayim asher hima hefaru hefeiru et briti va'anochi ba'altivam neum Adonai. Verse 33, Ki zot habrit asher echot et beit Yisrael achrei haimim hahim naum Adonai. Natati et torati bakirbam va'alibam ektavena vahaiti lahem le'elohim vehema yiyu li la'am. And the final pasik, the final verse, verse 34, Velo yilamdu od ish 
et reehu ve ish et achaiv le mor, du u et adonai, ki kulam ye du oti le miktanat le miktanam ve ad gdolam num adonai, ki eslach le avon le avonam ulchatatam lo ezkarod. And that'll do it for the liturgy from the Tanakh. Let's turn now to Galatians chapter 3, and we'll drop down to verse 10. We'll read verse 10 through 14 in the Greek, and only the Greek, since we read the Hebrew, the uh, English last week. Starting verse 10, uh, Galatians 3 says, Hasoi gar ex ergonamu eisen hupakataran eisen gegreptai garhati epikataratas pas hos uk emene pas tois gegremnois into biblio tu namu tu poesiaota. Verse 11. Hati de enamo udes decaiutai para totheo delon hati ha decaias ek pistios zesadai. Verse 12. Ha de namas uk esten ek pistios o ha poesas auta zesatai en autois. Verse 13. Christas humas exegorosen ek teis kataras tu namu genamenas hupere himon. Katara hati gegraptai epikataratas pas ha krenamenas epikutsulu. And the final verse, verse 14. Hina eis ta ethne e Hey, eulogia to Abraham genetai in Jesu Christu, Christo hina te evangelion to pneumatas labumen dia tes pistios. And that'll do it for the liturgy for tonight. Short questions, short answers by Tor Teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright Tate Tor Ministries 2015, all rights reserved. Here's our question for tonight What was the purpose of the Levitical Law? What was the purpose of the Levitical Law? Well, before he came to Messiah, Paul says in Romans that he would not have known what sin was except by the details spelled out in the law. So let's read some passages from the book of Romans tonight. Quote, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. End quote. That's the first verse. It continues. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. And Paul says, I died. Let's continue. Quote, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me, end quote. These are very curious verses that we're reading, and we would do well to go back and study them on our own a little bit later. Paul concludes by saying, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, end quote. That's Romans 7, 7 through 12, as rendered from the ESV. 
Thus, we can see that a good portion of the law defines sin and what it means to, quote, fall short of the glory of God, end quote. That's per Romans 3.23. This is in agreement with what John teaches in his letter. So let's turn to John and take a look. Quote, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Why? Sin is lawlessness. That's 1 John 3 verse 4 is rendered from the ESV. In my understanding of scripture, even though the law can showcase sin, it cannot convict a person of it. That's the job of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. For indeed, the Bible explicitly teaches us this elsewhere. So let's read the words of our master Yeshua as he talks about the coming and giving of the Holy Spirit. Quote, and when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. That's Yeshua's words from John 16, 8 through 11. Again, ESV version. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin. The letter of the law, moreover, without the Spirit cannot regenerate man. It only kills him. Let's read about that. Quote, Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit? For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. End quote. That's 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, ESV. What are our conclusions to our very short law study tonight. Let's talk about what we have been uh, rehearsing. The law is God's standard of what is sin and what is not sin. However, God knew that the law as quote good unquote as it was, read Romans 7:12, it was actually weakened by the flesh, read Romans 8:3. And this is because it could not convict of sin. And this is why God sent his son to do what the law could not do. It couldn't bring us through conviction into repentance. Only the spirit can do that. Look at this verse. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk how? Not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, end quote. That's Romans 8, 3 and 4. Again, ESV version. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Atonement itself exists on two levels. There's the temporal level and there's the eternal level. And that's why much of Levitical law pointed out sin and provided a means for sanctification, for the purification of the flesh, like read about in um, Hebrews. However, only the spirit of God through the blood of Jesus could, quote, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, end quote. And we can see these two levels of atonement if we read Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. And that talks about approaching the holy sanctum, like I mentioned in the previous slide. Since Paul has now come to be made like Yeshua by the fullness of the Spirit within him, concerning the law, listen to what he can now declare. Quote, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And also, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And of course, this is taken from that familiar passage in Romans. Let's keep reading. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, end quote. That's Romans 7, 22, 25, as well as 8, 1, and 2. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. That'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I bless the fact that you have brought your word to us. You've revealed it. You've preserved it. You've explained it to us via your Holy Spirit. And now we have the ability to walk it out. You've sent your son, Messiah, into the world to demonstrate what it means to be a perfectly obedient child of God. Indeed, he walked and modeled the Torah perfectly. He demonstrated for us what it means to be pleasing to the Father. And so we can now walk as he walked because we have the same Holy Spirit inside of us. We have that same empowerment from God to be able to uh, turn away from sin and to um, uh, turn into the righteousness of the Father. We don't make this up on our own. It's indeed already been given to us and modeled for us by Jesus. We simply have to walk the way that he walked. Thank you, Lord, that you have um, given us this opportunity to partner with you in taking this precious word around the world to many different countries that um, we find ourselves in. Indeed, as I'm speaking right now, and I'm looking at the people in my live chat, there's at least three different countries spread out around the world um, that are represented in the, uh, just the live study here in this short group uh, cluster of people. Uh, that are with me, three different countries, and we're all brought together by this medium of the internet, this mechanism, which is you know really, really cool. So thank you, Lord, that I'm a part of this, that um, you've uh, chosen me as an ambassador along with others to bear your name, uh, to bear your words, and to um, um, be an example. Uh, I might be the only Jesus that some people ever encounter, right? That's kind of, I remember kind of a song, you might be the only Jesus that people ever meet. So help me, Lord, to be exemplary in the way that I live, in the way that I act, being careful, being circumspect, uh, being wise, not as fools, but redeeming the time because these days are evil. I'm quoting a passage there, kind of um, paraphrased. Thank you, Lord, uh, for this opportunity. Uh, continue to uh, raise us up, strengthen us, protect us, heal us, Lord. Uh, give us a hope beyond hope. Uh, give us uh, provision even we even when we don't have jobs. And Lord, uh, bring us back together next, not next week. Lord, draw us into the festivals. These are your special times. These are your holy days. These are times that you set apart on your calendar that you invited us to come and participate with you for all the special, wonderful things that take place. So thank you, Lord, for in advance for um, Rosh Hashanah, for Yom Truah, the, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, the, 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 the Day of the Awakened Trumpet Blast. It's coming up next week. Thank you, Lord, for that time. Give us the opportunity to be blessed and to be refreshed and bring us back together two weeks from now. And we'll be careful to give the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen.